Uh, well, looking around at uh, the world, it's really easy to, um, I guess, get pretty discouraged. You know, as I was listening to Jim pray, as he often does about our country, it's easy to um, to see how far it's slidden from even just 50 years ago. We can re- we can all remember back. Um, even though I was a boy 50 years ago, I can still remember it was very different than the way it is right now. And um, But you know, when we say that the world is different, or in a sense the world is worse, which is what we mean, what we're really saying is that the culture is different. Because if we look back 2,000 years ago in the time of Christ, you know, the world was pretty bad then too. All you have to do is look at uh, Corinth in the first century, and you'll see a world that is uh, a little farther down the the pike as far as worse than we are. And then if you look back our six to 10,000 years ago in the book of Genesis, you see that there's the same things that are there then that that we struggle with today. So in a sense, nothing is new, as Solomon says, nothing's new under the sun. We just kind of have a different twist on old patterns of sin and struggle. Our faith in God is lived out in this context. And boy, it's a challenge. You know, we feel like Lot stuck in Sodom. As Peter says, the righteous people or righteous man tormented in his righteous soul because of all that's around him. We have to live out our faith in a context that is opposed to our faith. And um, that's trials, that's, that's tests, that's, that's struggle, not only with what, what's around us, but also with the sin that's in us, the flesh, the sinful nature that continues to war against the, the Holy Spirit who is also in us by faith in Jesus. So how do we, I mean, it's a question we often ask, but boy, we need a regular reminder of how we live our faith out in a context like this. And again, the question isn't new, but thankfully, neither is the solution. Let's look together at the book of Genesis and chapter 12. So find your Bible there on the coffee table, or feel free to jump up and go grab it from the other room. But Genesis chapter 12 is what we'll look at together. And if you're familiar with Genesis, you know that that is where Abraham begins. God dealt with humanity. If you remember the first 11 chapters of Genesis, uh, it wasn't a pretty picture. first 11 chapters sort of lives out the problem that uh, chapter 1 and 2, God creates the world, blesses the world, but then chapter 3, sin enters the world and the whole thing looks like as if it's going to spin out of control. And we see the, the chapters that follow that seem to confirm that, with God judging the entire world at the flood, with God judging the entire world at the Tower of Babel, with the confusion of languages and the distribution of races. And then in chapter 12, though, God kind of comes back to starting over once again. And it's amazing how he does it, because he, he deals with humanity as, as a whole in creation. Of course, at that time, there was only two. But he deals with humanity as a whole in the judgment of the flood, humanity as a whole, at Babel as a whole, 
But then in Genesis 12, it all comes down to one man and one woman, Abraham and Sarah, or at that time they were named Abram and Sarai. So Genesis 12, this familiar territory, I think it'd be neat for the next few weeks and helpful for us to look at the life of this man, Abraham. And as many weeks as we still have here on Zoom, we'll try to uh, walk our way through the life of Abraham because he has so much to instruct us. We, we tend to look at Abraham as this sort of stained glass, you know, otherworldly person. But we're going to see the reality is he was just like us. He was a man and Sarah was a woman just living out their faith the best they could in a culture that was completely opposed to it. Genesis 12, look at verse 1 with me and I'll read that. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. The Lord said to Abram, we're told, Abram. Uh, Abraham's name was Abram before God changed it. And we'll see the change uh, in weeks to come. But God chose Abram. Why did God choose Abram? I mean, he's, uh, as we're going to see as the passage goes on, he's 75 years old. And it seems a little odd, you know, between you and me, if God was going to select somebody to create a, uh, uh, a new nation, why would you pick a 75-year-old man and a 65-year-old woman? Uh, you get better odds with the lottery than you would with that. But, uh, and not only that, but the book of Joshua tells us that Abraham at this time worshipped idols. So you've got this 75-year-old idol worshiper in Ur of the Chaldees, and God selects this man. And he says to Abram, I want you to leave your country, leave your relatives, leave your father's house, and to go to the land which I will show you. The book of Hebrews says that Abraham was called to go where he did not know. This was a complete uh, act of faith on Abraham's part. Why did God call Abram? Well, there was nothing in Abram that would warrant it. I guess that's I guess what I'm trying to say. This was grace. This was God calling a man who had nothing to commend himself before God. It was grace. And it's the same way that we're called, isn't it? Because we don't have anything to commend ourselves before the Lord. He just calls us by his grace. Well, I want to show you a couple of uh, pictures here. I've got, I think, I can share my screen successfully this time. See if uh, that works for you. John McDonald, give me a nod if you see a big ziggurat on the screen. All right, good. So this is Ur. If you were to go to um, uh, this uh, Muslim country today, you would see Ur of Chaldees in the area just north of the Persian Gulf is uh, they've actually discovered this, um, this ziggurat. And on top here, where these, these are actually American soldiers about 10 years ago, but you can see the ruins that are on top that are from the time of Abraham, and then they've rebuilt this section down here to kind of support it. 
but they've basically reconstructed it to look as it did in the time of Abraham. And this is the ziggurat here in the background. And then you can see the archaeologists have also discovered houses. And I show you this, uh, I show you this picture because we kind of get the idea sometimes that Abraham is, you know, was kind of sitting around a campfire when God called him or that he was, you know, in this context of really roughing it, like everybody back, you know, 2000 BC was still sort of trying to figure out how to make a wheel work. But this wasn't reality at all. Um, Ur was a very advanced civilization. In fact, I don't know if you've ever been to the British Museum, but uh, if you ever go, or next time you go, or if you want to go online and look around at their virtual tour there, uh, I think Google Street View, if you go to like Google Maps of the uh, uh, British Museum, you can actually click your way and walk your way through that whole museum, which is an amazing bit of technology. But this uh, that you're seeing, this inscription, dates about 500 years before Abraham. This is basically a dermatologist's prescription for a skin disease. <laughs> This is the technology that they had at that time. They were not backwoods, ignorant people. This was a very sophisticated uh, culture. And uh, this was a headdress, ladies. This uh, predates, again, Abraham by about 500 years. So you can imagine that it wouldn't have been all that different at the time of Abraham. But this is what uh, ladies would wear. And they've got this at the British Museum. You can go, go there and look at it. I think you can also pick up one of these on Amazon if you want to wear it to church when we get back together again. But uh, this also is a, uh, you can see this little ram here. And here's a bigger picture of it. This is called Ram in the Thicket, which is totally a coincidence with the Genesis 22 account. But this is from Ur as well. And I show you this just to show the advanced artistry that artisans had at that time. Uh, I'm not sure if this is an, an object of worship, but again, it's in the British Museum. You can see it. And this is a board game. It's kind of the monopoly of the day. So once again, I, sh I show you these, these uh, images to just give you a very visual idea of the fact that Abraham was not, you know, not in uh, backwoods Arkansas. Uh, no offense to those of you who are from Arkansas, but this was an advanced culture that God was calling Abraham from. And God called Abraham to leave this place, and many people would think this is crazy. Uh, 2091 BC, Abram was called from this very advanced city to go to a place that he didn't know where he was going, just the land of Canaan. Go to the land that I'll show you. And how, how do you explain to your wife that this is an intelligent decision? There's no real estate photos for Abraham to approve. He knows nothing about the land that he's going to except that God would take him there. Leave all your pagan past, Abraham, and go to the land that I will show you. And when you do, here's what's going to happen. <clears throat> Look at the next verse, verse 2. God says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, 
and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Bless, 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 bless. I've I've read that uh, here in Genesis 12, we have the word blessing more times than these few verses than in all of the book of Genesis prior to this. We see God blessing the world at creation, and then the curse just takes over. And then here again in Genesis 12, God is bringing it back around to where my desire is to bless the whole earth. Notice he says, I'll make you a great nation. But then at the end of verse 3, he says, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God isn't just have, have a passion for Abraham and the Jewish race that would come from Abraham, but that through Abraham and the Jewish race, the entire world would be blessed. God's passion has always been the entire world, all of people, not just one race, but all of people. And keep your finger, if you would, keep your finger there in Genesis and turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. And let's look at a few verses there that are very significant and very encouraging for us who are not from Abraham's lineage. Galatians chapter 3. God creates the world. God blesses the world. Sin uh, earns God's curse, and God deals with it in a universal judgment. And God's promise to Abraham is global in its implications. It wasn't just a blessing for Abraham. wasn't just a blessing for the Jews. It was a blessing for all of us. And we know that because Galatians 3, look at uh, verse 8 at what Paul writes. Paul writes, The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of the faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Look down at verse 13. Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. It's helpful to keep this in context when we read Genesis, because we see God's intent. God's intent in blessing Abraham was not just to bless Abraham, was not just to create the Jewish nation, but that through that nation ultimately would come the Messiah, Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who would, who would die on the cross to pay for our sins, that any who have the faith of Abraham, which is basically just simply believing what God says, that any who believe what God says can have their sins forgiven, that Jesus paid the price for, for our sins. Um, that's great news. That, that's what Paul means when he says that he preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Uh, gospel simply means good news, and that's exactly what God shared. So turn back to Genesis, if you would, and look at those verses that we read there. Genesis 12, 1-3, once again, 
We won't read them, but just glance down through there, and you can see that God promised Abraham quite a few things there, but essentially three things. The first is land, and that's why the land of Canaan or Israel today is called the promised land because it was promised to Abraham. So land, the second is descendants, which of course is the Jewish race, and then the third is blessing, and the blessing we've camped on here quite a bit. And the promise of descendants is is an interesting twist in this promise to Abraham because it's the one that gives Abraham and Sarah the most trouble. You know, leaving the land, that's fine. they, They actually came to Canaan, and even though they didn't own any of it at the time, they could look at it, and God would make the promise, this is all going to be yours. Great, I see the land. But what if you don't see descendants? This was a big challenge for them. In fact, if you look back up just a few verses earlier in Genesis 11, look at verse 30. Genesis 11:30 says, Sarai was barren, she had no child. So this is the context in which God makes the promise. Not only was God calling Abraham to leave Ur, this very advanced culture, to go and live in a tent there in uh, uh, Canaan, but he was also calling him to believe that God was going to give him, uh, make him a great nation when he didn't have one descendant yet. That's faith. And they're past childbearing age. <laughs> this is great faith. And Abraham believed God. So how did God respond? Uh, How did Abraham respond to God's call? Look at verse 4. So Abraham went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abraham, or Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarah his wife and Lot his nephew and all their possessions which they had accumulated and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. And thus they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. So Abraham hears the call, he obeys the call, and he goes to Canaan, and he, it says that he goes to Shechem as far as the oak of Moreh. Moreh is a Hebrew word that means teacher. And so this was probably a place where, because the Canaanite was in the land, where Canaanite idolatry and Canaanite ideology was taught because there was a, 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 an oak tree there that was probably the place where this happened. And Abraham goes there, and he, this is the first place that we're told when Abraham goes into the land of Canaan, he goes to Shechem. And so it becomes a very significant place in the history of Israel. Once again, let me show you a... Um, couple of pictures. So here's Abraham's journey. And you can see he sort of started here down in Ur and worked his way all the way up in this area. And Haran is right here and then worked his way down into Canaan, and you can see the site of Shechem. Let me see if I can get my 
little pointer to work. All right, and so here's a, a map that's a little more close up of what we're looking at. Abraham enters the land and probably goes up this valley. And we, we know or assume that he goes up this valley because when Jacob later leaves the land, he leaves this way, which would have been a tradition, a, a route that he was familiar with. Interesting, as Adam passes, as Adam, as Abraham passes by this area, he would have passed by or crossed over the Jordan River here, uh, not far from Adam. And if you remember when Joshua enters the land, when the Jordan River uh, stops so that everyone can cross, it, uh, it dams up here at Adam. And so they can cross down here at Jericho. Anyway, I just saw that and thought that's kind of an interesting uh, coincidence. But Abraham enters the land, and we're told that he comes right here to a place called Shechem. And I want to show you, let's see if I can, again, make my technology work. Here is uh, Shechem. Shechem is this, this city right here between these two valleys. And so Abraham would have come down here from the north and would have entered Shechem at this place. And I think I have a more close-up view of it here. When, uh, when we take tours to Israel today, we'll get up here on the top of Mount Gerizim and be able to look down here into the valley and see some of the real significant history that occurred in this, uh, in this area. And it is significant. The, um, not only was Abraham here, but he also was told that uh, the nation would come back to this place and Joshua when he came back into the and when he came to the promised land came here to Shechem twice at the beginning of um, the conquest half of the nation stood here on Mount Gerizim to shout the blessings how half stood here on Mount Ebal to shout the curses then in the time of the judges you remember Abimelech was here in Shechem in fact you can see if we were Standing here on top of Mount Gerizim, you could look down and see the ruins from the temple in the time of Abimelech. Then later on, when the nation divided under uh, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, you remember Jeroboam basically uh, came here to Shechem, or Rehoboam came to Shechem, and they, they basically said, hey, make things easy for us. And Rehoboam says, no, I'm going to make things hard. And the nation divided right here. At Shechem, this is where the the divided nation of Israel occurred, and then of course uh, there there are other events, but the most significant event, next event, is when Jesus walked up from this way and met a woman at the well right here in this area of Shechem. Uh, New Testament, it's called Sychar, but this is a very significant area, um, and it all dates back to the significance of Abraham. Abraham came here to Shechem, and it was a very significant place, therefore, in the history of Israel as time went on. Well, the lesson, uh, the, the text teaches us a couple of good lessons today, and the first we've sort of already mentioned, but I'll, I'll make it real plain, and that is that uh, Abraham's principle, the principle of Abraham's life shows us, first of all, that God invites us to come to Him 
by grace through faith. God invites us to come to Him by grace through faith. It's the only way we can come to God. He calls us out of a situation that looks really successful from maybe a human standpoint, but if we want to have a relationship with a God who is holy, it can only be by grace through faith. If we were to read through the book of Romans, we would see uh, the Apostle Paul setting up the problem of sin separating us from God in the first three chapters of Romans. And then chapter 4, Paul uses Abraham as the example of one who believed God, and it was credited to Abraham as righteousness just because he believed. Abraham is the model of faith for anyone who's going to come to God. Um. You know, Abraham started when he was 75. Many of us came to Christ when we were still in the single digits. Like, I think I was about six or seven years old when I came to Christ. Abraham was 75 when he became a believer in the true God. And uh, I, I know most of you, as I look at your faces here in the Brady Bunch lineup here, I see most of you and know most of you. And I have confidence that most of you know Christ. But it's possible that maybe uh, some guests who are here today or, or you've come to church all your life and for some reason you're still sort of banking on the good life that you're living to merit you a place in heaven when you die. And the reality is Abraham shows us, as does the rest of the scriptures, that we come to God simply by His grace that our sin separates us from Him. He is holy, and, and the sin problem is what has to be dealt with. All the good works in the world are never going to remove our sin. They're with us unless something, unless someone pays for those sins, and that's what Jesus did when He died on the cross. So that first principle is so, so important for each of us. God invites us to come to Him by grace through faith. But, The text goes on, and Abraham's life also shows us that we can't just start with faith. Uh, Our daily life is a walk of faith, and it is a challenge. Look at the very next verse, verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So we could could just pause right there for a second. Think about your life for a moment. It, It wasn't true, was it, that when you placed your faith in Christ or when you woke up today... All things were perfect. The, you know, you, There's nothing wrong at all that you could complain about in your life. No, the fact is you've got a famine. You are struggling through a famine right now, and uh, I am too. We all are. God has rigged life that the only way that we succeed is by having faith in Him. It is a life that demands faith in our holy God. So verse 10, there was a famine in the land. And so Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. You know, Abraham was good there at the beginning when he said, you know, honey, you're beautiful. He should have stopped right there. But he didn't. He kept going and he said, the Egyptians are going to see your beauty. And the culture of that day 
is that uh, it's very simple to just kill a husband and to sell the wife to the highest bidder, especially if she's a beautiful foreigner and Sarah uh, qualified for this. So this is a test. God is testing Abraham. His true faith is tested with a famine. And first of all, he leaves the land that God told him to go to, which probably wasn't a great idea. He goes down to Egypt, obviously, because the Nile River there, I mean, famines are not a problem. There's plenty of water. And so a lot of times in the scriptures, you'll see people, God's people, escaping to Egypt to try to, um, to, to sidestep the, um, the lack of provision or the struggle of famine in the land of Canaan. So Abraham did nothing wrong to experience the famine, but he didn't respond to the famine very well. How does he respond to this first test? Well, he responds with a half lie. He says, they're going to see you, and they're, they're going to know how beautiful you are. They're going to kill me and let you live. So notice what he does here in verse 13. He cooks up a half lie. He says, please say that you're my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. And it came about when Abram came to, into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore, he treated Abraham well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. It worked. Abraham's uh, half-truth worked like a charm. He was safe. But uh, was he really? Years ago, uh, some friends and I went to play laser tag. I don't know if you've ever played laser tag, but this will take five or ten years off your life, running around in the dark with this little, <laughs> this little gun shooting at, uh, at, uh, at, at one another. It's actually kind of fun to get out some pent-up anger if you go with somebody that, you, that you'd like to laser. Anyway, I went with some friends, and I was standing in line there with uh, waiting to get our ticket, and there was this, this sort of uh, loudmouth kid behind us who was bragging about how good he was, that he, you know, he was going to shoot everybody, and he was so good at laser tag. And then I just kind of turned around and looked at him, and he looked at me, and he, said, he asked me how good I was. And I, I told him, I said, you know what? I've never been shot. His eyes widened. Uh, he, he says, I, I've never, I said, I've never lost. I, I've never lost at this game. Well, what I didn't tell him is I'd never played before. It was a half-truth. <laughs> what I said was true, but it was only half-true. Uh, what's funny is this kid made me the object of his wrath, and you think he shot me like 87 times, made his day. He thought, man, you've never been shot before, and you're an easy target. Anyway, this is what Abraham did. Abraham told the truth. Sarah was his half-sister. We'll see later on in the book of Genesis. But there was another half that he forgot to mention when he introduced Sarah, or when Sarah uh, introduced herself, and that is, oh, I'm also married to her. It's a, it's a bit of the truth, but it's not the whole truth. And Abraham, facing this brick wall, he could see no way out except to compromise. 
So here's the second principle. And, you know, you might have even thought that Abraham was saying, look, if I'm killed, how's God going to bless the world? God needs me. And so this is the best way that I can figure out how to survive. Well, here's the second principle. When your faith is tested, trust in God rather than in your plan of compromise. Trust in God rather than in your plan of compromise when your faith is tested. First of all, because your faith will be tested. And the plan of compromise is an easy shortcut. And and with Abraham, it worked. This is the danger. Sometimes if we compromise in God's plan, God may allow it to work. And then, uh, But then ultimately it doesn't work because we're going to see in the, as the text goes on that this wasn't such a great idea. But the point is simply that even the faithful are going to have trials. Don't fall under the delusion that you know if I'm walking with God or if I'm a true believer in Christ that uh, I shouldn't be dealing with this. This shouldn't be happening in my life. The reality is even people of great faith have great trials. Abraham did nothing wrong, and a famine showed up. And it was there to test his faith. Even Abraham, the man of faith, didn't always act in faith, but rather in fear. And that's another good thing. Not only don't believe the lie that says that you're not a true believer if you have trials. That's not true. You're going to have trials. Also, don't believe the lie that you're not a true believer if you blow it. Well, if I was a true believer, I wouldn't be acting like this. Really? Well, look at Abraham. The guy flat out lied to save his own skin, and he put Sarah in jeopardy. She went into Pharaoh's household, and Abraham evidently allowed it, and Abraham got rich. Um, this is not a man living, living out his faith, is it? And yet he was a true believer. So we've all done that ourselves. And, he, and here's something else that's, that's important to note about this story, is that while Abraham didn't know it at the time, God intended to give descendants through Sarah. Abraham didn't know this at the time. So maybe he thought Sarah was expendable. I don't know. But we're going to find out as time goes on that both Sarah and Abraham figured, okay, so Abraham's going to have great descendants. Sarah's not in the picture because she's barren. But God knew it. God knew that Sarah was the plan. And if Pharaoh had taken Sarah into his harem, the line could have been compromised right there in Genesis chapter 12. The plan could have been blown hardly right after it had begun. So God had to step in and save them in order to keep his promise, to protect his promise. So look at verse 17. The Lord struck Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. God had promised to bless those who bless him and to curse those who curse, and God did exactly that. Uh, interesting, this uh, Abraham's life sort of becomes a, a, a metaphor or a precursor, you might say, of, the, of his, all his descendants. 
Remember why Abraham's descendants went to Egypt for the Exodus? To escape a famine. Remember what happened when they got there? Uh, let's kill all the males and let's save all the girls. This is sort of a precursor of what we're seeing here. And then God had to step in to ultimately deliver. So it's sort of like, uh, sort of like the Exodus or, or, or the Joseph story. But uh, the great thing about this is that God steps in to protect his promise. And thankfully, he does that in our lives as well. If, if God's promise to us was left up to our faithfulness for it to be kept, we'd blow it. But God keeps his word. God keeps his promises in our lives, even though uh, our reactions sometimes can seem to threaten them or violate, violate God's promise. The Apostle Paul wrote, If we are faithless, God remains faithful because God cannot deny himself. This is why God's unconditional love for us secures our salvation. So, the two lessons we saw, God invites us to come to him by grace through faith. And then secondly, when your faith is tested, trust in God rather than in a plan of compromise. So once again, you're in a famine, you're in some kind of a situation like Abraham was, as a true believer, don't believe the lie that you shouldn't be there, that uh, there's something wrong with your faith, necessarily, that's put you there. That may not be true. You may be right in the middle of God's will for you, and you living out your faith in that difficult situation gives God glory, and God, like he did with Abraham, would work through that situation to bring about the fulfillment of God's promises. And secondly, don't believe the lie that that you that uh, that if you blow it in that context, that maybe if you don't live it out like you should, that you're not a believer, or that um, that God is necessarily displeased with you in the sense of saying, you know what, all bets are off. I'm going to start over with somebody else. Maybe there's somebody else in Ur that can take me seriously since you're not doing it, Abraham. God didn't do that. God stepped in and said, my promises for you are still good because I called you by grace. You can't lose by grace. Uh, you, can't, you can't lose by your works what we've started by grace. Our grace is not grace. God invites us to come by grace through faith. And when the faith is tested, we trust God rather than in the plan of compromise. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful to you because the Word shows us a reflection of our own lives. Abraham, the great patriarch, is just a simple man. This, uh, this man, 75-year-old man, who desperately needed to be saved from a life of idolatry, a life of successful, prosperous idolatry. And you did. You called him out of that to go to a place that required faith. And it was a, a land that taught him faith, and it was a land that also uh, saw him fail. Father, thanks for those times in our lives that you have called us out of our background into a walk with you. And even though we blow it, you continue to sustain your promises in our lives, continue to give us hope, and fulfill the promise that you've made to us to ultimately make us like your son, Jesus. We pray for any who are here with us today, who are listening and watching, and for some reason have a nagging uh, guilt 
about uh, uh, something in their past or if there's this nagging wonder if they're really saved or not, that you'd put that to rest once and for all, that salvation is a very, very simple proposition of simply exchanging all of our good works in our life for the, the merit of Jesus Christ on the cross and trusting in what he did when he died for us. And we pray in his name. Amen.